Stuff Podcasts. Previously on the Commune. You know, we had the swimming pool, tennis court, spa pool, hot tub. We on the inside were special, more loving than the rest of the world. <laughs> Outside was anybody not in the community. So there's a line I wrote that Centrepoint has done for communities what the Hindenburg did for airships. This episode of The Commune contains strong language and references to sexual abuse. We found that once we moved in, it became very easy to live with other people. We didn't have to put things under the carpet or hide them behind the blinds. We were able to have everything right out in the open. And I mean that quite literally. Everything is on view. And because of that, any tensions that start to come up are being when everybody got together in a big hall and this is the final moment that winding up this fantastic thing we've been doing and there was an extremely loud, overwhelming sound of a woman seeming to have an orgasm or fake an orgasm. My friend and I ducked down in the seats. We didn't want to be seen. We were absolutely appalled. And I looked across at a little group of nuns and I thought, I wonder what you're making of this. They looked very serene. This is Rosemary McLeod. Rosemary McLeod, social commentator. She's also a journalist and author and cartoonist and a well-known collector of domestic textile crafts. Get a level right. Right. I had a jazz apple. And we're at her home in Wellington. Is it possible to turn your aircon off so it doesn't come on? You want it off? Because yeah, Rosemary's been turning a sceptical eye on Aotearoa society for decades and we thought she could help fill in some gaps for us about the cultural life of New Zealand a half century ago. That noisy public orgasm that had her and her friend ducking down in their seats, that was in the mid-70s at something called the United Women's Convention. I think it was women, United Women, all together working out how to make the world a better place. Yeah. Rosemary was a feminist, and she was fascinated with the way society was changing. Well, I suppose one thing that happened was that lesbians came out, I used to socialise quite a lot with a group of them who were funny and clever and out. And I even felt some sympathy for the radical feminist separatists. They were extreme, but I liked their politics and principle. I heard of a household of them who wouldn't even let a male electrician in the door. I thought, well, yes, why do we put ourselves in a position of dependency, even with technology? But Rosemary always had a knack for spotting the silliness and strangeness that existed alongside the serious stuff. Take nudity. In the 70s, there was suddenly an awful lot of it about. And that was basically fine. That's no big deal. Nudists are not particularly known for being promiscuous or silly. And Rosemary didn't consider herself a conservative. Not then, not now. But she did feel there was a time and place for whipping off your clothes. A lesbian friend of mine had a girlfriend who was forever walking around with no clothes on and somehow, because she was very tall, her pubic hair was always sort of somehow in the direct line of sight 
And so, you know, there is a downside to it, is what I would suggest. I'm Adam Dudding, and this is The Commune, episode four, Under the Carpet. We'll get back to Rosemary and the unusual world that was 1970s and 80s Aotearoa. But first, I want to rewind the clock even further than that. With the help of this guy. I'm Nick Bollinger. I guess you'd call... (laughs) Uh, I'll start that again. Um, I mean, I used to call myself a music critic. Yeah. And I suppose now I would call myself a cultural critic or a... Okay, well, that's That's good. That's nice. (laughs) It's your biography. You, You go where you want. I'm Nick Bollinger. I'm a cultural critic, and I'm currently working on a book about what is called the counterculture as it transpired in New Zealand, particularly in the 60s and 70s. So that's just before Centrepoint. But his research took him all the way back to Māori society in pre-colonial... Aotearoa was a country of communes. I mean, it was entirely structured around cooperative groupings. But as is the way with colonists, none of them saw the existing culture or societal structure as being their idea of utopia. Some early colonials had a crack at founding their own utopias. Places like Waipu, north of Auckland, where Scottish Presbyterians set up a community in the 1850s. But the real forerunner of the classic hippie commune has to be... Beeville. A place called Beeville. Which was set up, I think, in the late 1920s in Morrinsville. The doctrine there was... Responsible freedom. They kept bees, they grew vegetables... And that commune lasted well into the 1960s. It was different, so it drew attention. I mean, you can go back to newspaper stories in the 1940s and 50s. You know, it attracted quite a lot of salacious interest from the media, particularly centred on things like open marriage. Yep, another New Zealand commune with unorthodox ideas about sex. They were pacifists, so they refused to fight in World War II. They gardened in the nude. Always with the nude gardening, huh? Well, that's what they say. <laughs> if you, it's like one of the rules. If you're going to form a commune, you garden in the nude. Yeah, I mean, some of those stories are a bit scary, aren't they? Because they'd get into um, quite heavy pieces of industrial equipment and things, <laughs> you know, big kind of haymaking machines and things. I don't know yeah. if you'd want to get too close to those without a bit of protection, but nevertheless. The big boom in alternative lifestyles arrived in the 1970s, and it was driven by one particular demographic, a group who these days get a lot of stick for owning all the houses and basically destroying the planet. I'm talking about... The baby boomers. The boomers. That's people born in the decades directly after World War II. They started to come of age in the 1960s. And began to question absolutely everything. You know, whether it was nuclear weapons or the Vietnam War, or the use of drugs or the institution of marriage, mixed flatting, you know, everything was up to be challenged. Mixed flatting, in case the phrase means nothing to you, is the scandalous concept of men and women living together in a house when they're not even married. Yeah, New Zealand had been this incredibly buttoned-down and repressive society, and there were dreadfully hypocritical attitudes to things like sex. It wasn't just sex, though. Boomers were growing up in a world that was totally different from the one their parents grew up in. Those older generations who lived through the Depression and through war, 
They mostly wanted a quiet, safe, prosperous life for themselves and for their kids. Then, after the war, they actually achieved that. So their kids grew up in an age of affluence, which a lot of them found boring. And because of that affluence and safety... They had the time and means to question things. Houses were cheap. New jobs were easy to find. If you were young and wanted to try something totally different, it wasn't even that big a risk. Also... Travel was opening up, so you had young people, early as their late teens, heading off on the notorious hippie trail, taking a year to get to Europe, travelling overland through Asia. And they were encountering all sorts of new things. Eastern spirituality, Eastern sexuality. You know, you had the Kama Sutra was available suddenly in the alternative bookshops. You know, massage, yoga. It was a time for opening your mind. Some people went searching for to change their consciousness through hallucinogenic drugs like LSD. Some, it was through practising different religious beliefs. A number of people going to your traditional Christian churches began to plummet in the 60s. But oddly, a lot of them seemed to be looking for something to replace it with. They were trying to fill a void in lots of ways. One way to fill that void? Try out a totally different domestic setup. In the late 60s and early 70s, there was an explosion. Dozens and dozens, if not hundreds. Of new communes or intentional communities. I mean, it was a real movement. And in the middle of all that, something really unusual happened. What was perhaps most extraordinary was that the Labour government of the early 70s picked up on this trend and actually got behind it. The Prime Minister, Norman Kirk, was no hippie himself, but he admired the non-materialistic ethos of the hippies. So he helped set up something called... The Ohu Scheme. The Ohu Scheme. Chunks of unused rural land owned by the government were made available to people who wanted to start communes. Some did okay, but overall, the Ohu Scheme was a major flop. About 50 or 60 groups gave it a crack, but... They came up against often conservative local councils who did everything they could to stop them... The land itself was usually pretty poor, and a lot of the people who set off to go bush were actually complete dreamers. They were urbanites. They didn't have a clue, you know. I've talked to people who went off into the middle of nowhere with cannabis plants and wire netting. (laughs) They might have planted a few vegetables. They'd come back a couple of months later, and the, the possums had eaten their dope plants, and the vegetables had The crop had failed, and that was the end of the commune. (laughs) Which, time-wise, pretty much brings us up to the point in the early 70s when Barry, you remember Barry... I was a foundation member of Centrepoint. ...was founding her first commune out in West Auckland. We formed a community. Remember, that's Timatanga, the place where she had her first two children. This is about the time Bert Potter was reading Playboy and making visits to the Esalen Institute in California when all the timelines of the people who would become the Centrepoint pioneers were starting to converge. We'll still come up to the surface and recall outside stimuli and just say, ah, yes, and let them go and go deeper down into a trance. When Centrepoint arrived in the Auckland suburbs, Rosemary McLeod, who we met at the top of this episode, soon became aware of it, even from the distance of Wellington. I heard that somebody I'd met was part of it, and I was very much surprised. She saw the media coverage, watched that controversial Jeff Stephen documentary with the naked people, and the therapy sessions, and all that wailing. 
in some ways, it seemed no big deal. I mean, there'd been earlier communes. The Quakers had them. I've never heard anything bad about Quakers. Centrepoint's shared toilets and the lack of privacy, that didn't appeal much. I'd lived in a boarding school, you understand. So I knew quite a bit about what it's like being around other people's bodies a lot and having a lack of privacy. But it wasn't done for the, in the belief that it was going to do us some good. It was just a reality that you had communal showers. And she found a lot of the media coverage weirdly unquestioning. Well, here was an experiment in living, and people went to write about it and to document it. The problem, at least in Rosemary's eyes, was... No questions were ever asked. Or at least not the ones that Rosemary would find herself shouting at the TV screen. You might perhaps challenge Mr Potter. You know, you might say, is, is this a good thing? Why is it a good thing? What are your qualifications to be saying that? What do you know about psychotherapy? Oh, you haven't got any qualifications. Are you a doctor? Oh, no, you're not a doctor either. Where do your ideas come from? Oh, you've read books. I've read books too. Uh, tell me more. Look, in fairness to the media, there'd come a time when all those questions were being asked, and pretty strongly. But to Rosemary, a lot of that early coverage... It was like a a travelogue. Look at the lovely cafeteria. Look at the lovely salads. Isn't that good? Uh, Look at the man walking around with no clothes on. Isn't that nice? He feels free. It's a fine day. Uh, I'm sorry, that's not journalism. Because her overwhelming concern, even without seeing the place up close, was... What about the children? What about the children? What Um, what about the children? What specifically? Well, I, from a position that I had, which I was an unprotected child, children who aren't protected have very bad things happen to them. If parents have abdicated from that position of responsibility then very bad things happen to children, as we now know in children's homes, in religious institutions, in boarding schools, everywhere. Where there's an opportunity for a predator, there will be a victim, and the thing to do is not enable them to find their victims. Remember, at this point, Rosemary hadn't heard the kind of stories we've just heard from Barry and from Robert in the last episode. Her concern was based simply on what Centrepoint was openly talking about. She didn't care about the nudity. The red flag was the open admission, boasting really, that adults were having sex in front of children. It suggested to her that Centrepoint was breaking some boundaries that probably shouldn't be broken. Once you eliminate all the strings that tie us together, in a way that make us work as a community. Once you substitute for that blind obedience to a leader, the the danger is obvious. As women, we're always told to be quieter, to not make a fuss. Need a place to put your feelings? Sick of being told you're too much? I get called hysterical like every single day. Have we got a podcast for you? From Bird of Paradise and Stuff, this is Tell Me About It, a podcast about feminism and journalism. And a safe place to put your rage. With me, Michelle Duff. Me, Kirsty Johnston. And me, Noelle McCarthy. Tell Me About It, available on Stuff and wherever you get your podcasts.
Thanks to New Zealand On Air. Those earlier New Zealand communes Nick Bollinger talked about were usually way out in the WAPs, the middle of nowhere. But Centrepoint was right on the city fringe. Those earlier communes were also usually fiercely anti-materialistic, often anarchists or at least socialists. But Centrepoint was pretty into its luxuries. We had a swimming pool, tennis courts, spa pool. Just about everyone we've talked to has raved about the food. Big trays of lasagna and creamy mushrooms and Sundays we'd have pancakes. So there was enough rock melons for 400 people to have a half a rock melon each that was beautifully ripe. There was a fleet of vehicles for members to share and next to the kitchen was a storeroom. And you could just go and help yourself to, you know, soap, razors, just anything we needed and that was just amazing. In the school holidays, kids went on group trips to the movies or ice skating. Busloads of community members would go to stadium gigs of big international bands. So, how do they pay for all this? Well, early on, Centrepoint had a healthy number of paying customers for its group therapy sessions. Also, some members worked outside the community in regular jobs, and their income was funneled into the communal accounts. Plus, there were various Centrepoint businesses selling products to the public. Silk dresses, silk scarves, wooden puzzles. There was a huge plant nursery and the pottery. And there was a paper business. For a while, Centrepoint made weights, you know, for barbells at the gym. And some of those businesses brought in money. But Centrepoint had another magic bullet for keeping its finances in order. When you became a member, you handed over everything you owned to the Centrepoint Trust. Like, everything. Barry, she had a settlement from her first marriage and she put every dollar of it into Centrepoint. $6,000 in those days was a big lump. Robert? Um, not so much money, but asset. He gave the Trust a six-acre block of land which they sold, plus his house in the Waikato. And because he's Robert, of course he also turned up with some stock and a couple of vehicles and a trailer and probably a few chainsaws. There was more. If you earned or inherited something while you were a member, well, if you were sticking to the rules, that went into the community too. John and I got married there, and so John's mother gave me a pendant, and it was made with some family silver, and I put it into the community pool because that was the right thing to do. Of course, if you turned up at Centrepoint with no money or assets, this system could really work to your advantage. No money down, but you still get the food, the facilities, the lovely swimming pool. So some prospective members would bend the rules. Before joining, they'd quietly leave some money with a family member, just in case. Or they'd blow their life savings with a big world trip, say. Or, at the other end of the scale, they might just do a little bit of last-minute shopping. Mum didn't have a huge amount. This is Renee. But she gave everything. I remember she took us shopping the day that she became a member just to use a bit more of the money. Um, and I got a beautiful floral duvet cover and um, we bought some clothes and just sort of kitted us out. Dave, the businessman, the pioneer member who had imported Indian wraparound skirts, at Centrepoint he was the financial controller and he didn't approve of people using that loophole. There's a court document we've seen where a Centrepoint member writes about Dave hounding and harassing her after she joined because although she had already handed over all her own money, he wanted her to transfer another $2,000 from an account that was in her children's name, which they'd been left by their grandmother. She won that tussle, but on her last day before officially joining, she went on one of those last-minute shopping trips. 
Like Renee's mum, she wanted some bed linen for her children. We've got an actor to read from that affidavit. I went out to buy this in a pizza for us to celebrate my last day of freedom now that I was a member. Dave followed me, reminding me of what I'd signed, and raved on and on. When I returned, he was still there, waiting for me, angry and abusive. I remember throwing the small amount of change at him and watching in surprise as he grovelled on the ground, picking up every last cent. Some people handed over much more than loose change. One early member, Pat, was from a seriously wealthy family, and when a trust fund matured and she received a large inheritance, she gave it all to Centrepoint. A few years later, another chunk was due to come to her, a million dollars. But this time, it came with the condition from her family that it had to stay with her and not go to the commune. Rather than break her promises to Centrepoint, Pat turned down the million dollars altogether. Giving away all your money, all your financial autonomy, that's a bit unusual, right? And Barry, the way she was brushing over the things that were going on with the children at Centrepoint even though her instincts were telling her it was bad. And all those messages coming from Bert about the wonderful life they were having inside Centrepoint. We, on the inside, were special, more loving than the rest of the world. (laughs) And the fact that Bert was recognised as the community guru and that in his speeches he often went on about God. My concept of God is just the total universe, the total energy that's available. Was Centrepoint, by any chance, a cult? Well, duh, yes, Centrepoint was a cult. I mean, in its simplest definition, a cult is pretty much indistinguishable from a religion. That is, a system of veneration and devotion directed towards a particular thing or object or god or guru. But, you know, there's also the other definition of cult that everyone sort of understands – Basically, a new religion or belief system that takes everything too far and messes with its members. And Centrepoint came along at a time when the idea of cults was making a lot of people nervous. Through the 1970s, Western media got fixated on the idea that the Unification Church of Reverend Sun Yung Moon, you might know them as the Moonies, were brainwashing new members a kind of mental coercion supposedly involving kidnap and sleep deprivation. Scientology, Ron L. Hubbard's wacky blend of science fiction, religion and self-help, was also often in the news. And then there was the utter horror of Jonestown. These are the first pictures out of Guyana on the incredible orgy of death that took place in the People's Temple agricultural mission at Jonestown. Cultists who believed in everything that Jim Jones That was the cult community from San Francisco that migrated to the wilderness of Guyana in South America, where almost all of them died, 918 people, in a mass murder-suicide ordered by their deranged leader, Jim Jones. Most of the deaths at Jonestown were from drinking poison mixed into a cup full of sweet powdered drink. That's where you get the phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid. This happened in November 1978, when Centrepoint was less than a year old, and some New Zealanders thought the parallels were terrifying. At Centrepoint, they thought the parallels were hilarious. Barry says one of the gripes of Centrepoint life was that everyone kept making themselves coffee, but failing to bring the cups back to the kitchen. So, 
one of the jokes was the only difference between Centrepoint and Jonestown is there'd never be enough cups for everybody. Boom, boom. In his celebratory book about life inside the commune, Len Oakes, who had a psychology degree and later studied theology, directly admits Centrepoint is a cult. Centrepoint is a communal psychotherapy cult. But he totally removes the sting by using a very forgiving definition of cult. A cult is a minority religion, and most societies contain a few. Christianity is a cult in India and China, and in earlier times, Roman Catholicism was a persecuted cult in New Zealand. Which is true, as far as it goes. But Barry says, at the time, for all the jokes and Len Oakes's fancy semantics, people inside Centrepoint really didn't think of themselves as part of a cult in any negative sense of the word. Though, that's exactly what you would think. Let me explain. Much, much later, Barry would study cults in an academic rather than participatory sense. And yeah, she says when you frame Centrepoint as a classic, dangerous, mind-controlling, identity-stealing, behaviour-modifying, guru-following cult, there's much about the place that suddenly makes a lot more sense she would learn about researchers like the American psychiatrist Robert Lifton, who categorised some of the common traits of cults, most of which revolve around... Breaking down a person's sense of individuality. And when she finally saw it all laid out in black and white, it felt very familiar to Barry. Things like the three stages of falling into a cult. So the first stage is the sort of love-bombing stage. You turn up usually in some kind of life crisis, and you end up in a group therapy session where there's lots of cathartic screaming and thumping pillows that leaves you kind of euphoric. You're charmed, you're not alone, you'll never be alone again. And so that feels really, really good. If you want more and stick around, you might move towards the second stage. Where you start to lose your identity, your bank account, wear cult clothes, losing your sense of identity and taking on a cult identity. Which leads, like clockwork, to the third stage. You've invested your money, you've invested yourself psychologically, your reputation. Um, You've taken on a cult persona and your old personality has been crushed and broken. You've been told that was worthless. Then, once you're in the cult... The group has traits that help lock you in. Things like a group sense of superiority and a habit of picking fights with the outside world. There's the use of so-called thought-stopping cliches, empty phrases that divert you away from rational reflection. So at centre point, says Barry, people would always say... You're getting into your head now. Just get out of your head and into your body. There's just so much on the cult behaviour checklist that matches up with centre point. Remove members' individual privacy. Check. Take away their financial autonomy. Check. Set them arbitrary and difficult tasks. Check. Tell them that if they leave, they'll go mad or die or run out of money. Check. Become more and more extreme over time. Check. Make sex weird. Check. Whatever the cult, they will make a pronouncement about sex. So, you know, it's either no sex or extreme sex, but it's a pronouncement about sex that isn't just natural and you can never quite measure up. 
But remember, in her early days at Centrepoint, Barry hadn't yet read any books about this stuff. She wasn't consulting a checklist of cultic behaviours, she was living it, and struggling to make sense of it. Like the open relationships. If this was so great for everyone's personal development, why did it feel so awful? Everyone was in a state of emotional turmoil. People that were in couples, what am I going to hear next? You know, where's my partner? Um, I don't want to get a job outside because I don't know what he'll be doing. She told us a story that explains exactly what it was like. For a while, Barry's children from her first marriage were living with their father over at Timatanga, Barry's first commune. So Barry would go back there as a teacher. I did Mondays in the school over there to be have my time with the girls. And I was in the school and then I just said to one of the other parents, I'm going home now. And I just kind of went to my car. I got in my car. I just drove and I just parked in the parking lot and I just went to my car case and I just opened the door and my husband was there with another woman and I was just, get out. Get your clothes on and get out. (laughs) I mean, it was just crazy. These days, with the benefit of distance and the vocabulary to describe it, she thinks she can make sense of moments like that. It's all just part of the destruction and the loss of boundaries, and it's all just part of the control and just, yeah, just taking people's focus of what was really going on. I don't believe it can happen from most of the human societies. A founding Centrepoint member, the editor of the Commune's propaganda magazine. She's not feeling right about the way things are going. She thought they were going to be living in little family houses dotted through the Albany bush. She thought getting into your loving would be about joy and openness, not driving home in a panic to turf someone out of your husband's bed. She thought Centrepoint was going to be the perfect place to raise children, but she sees that girl on the lawn with Bert and then turns and walks inside and can't even be certain that what she saw was a bad thing. That three-stage process for falling into a cult? At this point, Barry is a solid stage three. So what about Robert? One of the founding members of Centrepoint Community Growth Trust. He's in the same cult. He's locked in with some of the same padlocks as Barry, all his assets, a partner and kids in the community with him a sense that they're doing something special. He's sort of enjoying the freedoms that come with the open relationships. Yeah, like a pig at the trough. (laughs) But that said, his relationship doesn't survive. She says, oh, I don't want to live with you anymore. And I said, why not? She says, I don't know, she says. But it's okay, Bert said it's okay. Fuck me. Which is possibly why Robert starts pushing back against the most obviously cultish thing of all about Centrepoint. Bert Potter's guru status. Sure, he still respects Bert as a therapist, but that supreme overconfidence which made Bert think he was awesome with a chainsaw or that he could call the shots during a home birth, everyone's letting him get away with it. But Robert thinks it's ridiculous. He says he tried to explain it once to Dave, Centrepoint's money man. So Dave's there, and Dave's Bert's right-hand man. Dave wasn't just the finances guy. He was probably Bert's most loyal lieutenant. 
I said, well, this car you're driving here, I said, it's black, isn't it? He said, yeah. Yeah, it's black. What's your problem? I said, it's not my problem. I says, if Bert said to you that car was white, what colour would it be? And he repeated my words. He says, if Bert said that car was white, that car would be white. And I said, well, that's why you're there and I'm here. I says, I can't live with bullshit like that. Plus, Robert has heard Bert outside the showers talking about this appalling thing he's just done with a toddler. Like Barry, Robert has witnessed something that cuts right across what he knows to be right. And remember, in the last episode, for Robert, that was it. So what's Robert going to do? First, he tells someone. So I went straight back to the father. And I said, have you heard this? He says, no. After that? Well, I can't clearly remember. I wouldn't have had any support around the place. By then, I was a bit of a target, I think, in a way, because I was the only one saying that he was, you know, like the king of worn no clothes. And I'd had enough. The way Robert tells it, there was a whole fistful of final straws. Yes, there was what he overheard at the showers. But also, he felt the commune was getting overpopulated, which was putting strain on the infrastructure. The lovely new roads were falling apart. And his marriage was over anyway. So... He got a bit of money from the office and one of the other members offered him a ride. In his car on his way to work and dropped me at the bus depot. And that was it. Robert was out of Centrepoint. Well, not quite. Robert decides he really wants to get his kids out of the commune too. But he ends up in a bit of a standoff, initially with Dave. So I went up and I said to my kids, do you want to come back with me? Yes. I said, well, when I leave here... In a few hours, I says, you'll be coming with us in the ute, in a Peugeot ute. So I says, just go to the clothes, and get what clothes you want to have, put them in a bag and da-dee-da. And I said, just hang about and be ready, OK. So then I went and told their mother. She didn't like that. Anyway, I get back out to the ute and I've just put the key in the ignition and the kids are all jumped in and Dave's trying to fucking grab the keys out of the ignition. At this point, Robert does a dramatic reenactment of the moment, so he goes off mic, but you get the picture. He rubbed his hand and squeezed and got the key and he pulled off out. He opened the door and tried to pull me out. And I hit him in the guts. <laughs> and I says, fuck off, Dave. This has got nothing to do with you. These are my kids and there were about eight guys around the ute by then. And then Bert comes waddling along, you know. And uh, I said, look... I says, I'll really hurt you if I have to. I says, I'm good for at least four of you bastards. And I says, there's a jack handle right there. And I says, I'll lay the fucking lot of you out. Get out of it. Bert said, we'll run the police. I says, oh, that's good. In the end, says Robert, the police calm everyone down. He leaves with the kids after all. And the custody issues start going through court. But Robert is conflicted about what to do next. He doesn't hate everything about Centrepoint. The mother of his children is still there, but he knows the place is rotten. Bert bragging about a sexual encounter with a toddler has really disgusted him, so he makes his call. All bets are off. The time has come for everybody to hear what's going on and what's happening to children inside Centrepoint. 
An Aussie TV crew came over and interviewed me in front of my fire. That's what he'd like to do with her. And she was just dumbstruck, and it happened. And I felt like saying it to him, what the fuck are you doing here? Episode 4 of The Commune, a Stuff production. It was written, researched and produced by Eugene Bingham and me, Adam Dudding. Mixing by Andrew McDowell of DigiCake. Music by Audio Network. For more information about the show, head to stuff.co.nz slash thecommune. <laughs>